0: Hello, and welcome to All Things Urticaria from Medthority. In this series of podcasts, our host, Professor Marcus Maurer, is joined by his friends and colleagues to discuss All Things Urticaria. Over to Professor Maurer. Hello and welcome. Welcome back to All Things Urticaria. My name is Marcus, Marcus Malva, and I'm very much looking forward to this episode because I am have my friend back, former all things urticaria, protagonist Luis Felipe Encina from the Ucare Network and, of course, from Sao Paulo. Hello. Bom dia, Luis.
1: Hello, Marcos. Bom dia. Uh, Thank you for having me here. And actually, I'm very excited about this episode because today I'm going to ask some questions to Professor Marcos
0: Maurer. (laughs) All right. I'm ready, Luis. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is a You Care podcast. Um, For this episode, we want to take a little stroll down memory lane. This is your idea, Louis. So I'm very curious to see what angle you're going to take. Um, Let's start with the past and our experience from many years back and work our way to the present.
1: Yes, let's go back to the 90s, Marcus. At, the, at right. that time, we were starting to, to study urticaria. You are six years older than me, so you were probably starting your training in dermatology. I was in medical school. But I remember uh, in my first days in during my fellowship in allergy, the head of the department used to to tell us that urticaria patients should be referred to our enemies. <laughs> oh.
0: and
1: why? It, it was the same for you. Why, yes. why that at that time?
0: Yeah. Louis. <laughs> yes, I remember those days. Um, I, I came back from the US from my fellowship there. I wanted to put good use to all that knowledge on mast cells that I had accumulated there. Um, wanted to treat patients with muscle-driven diseases, and of course, you know, urticaria top of the list. And uh, I was in a, in a, in, in a, at a university in Mainz with my friend Petra, Petra Staubach, and we sat down and we said, let's do something for urticaria patients. Let's open a urticaria clinic, which at the time was unheard of. No one had a urticaria clinic. Actually, like you say, no one really wanted to see these patients. Um, And the the response, not from my boss at the time, but the response from colleagues was, uh, that's great, Petra, Marcus. thank you so much. Then we can send you all of our urticaria patients. Uh, and another response was, why are you doing this? We know nothing. We have nothing we can do for these patients. They are so difficult. You know, remember, Luis, at the time, many people thought that this was a psychosomatic disease that people get urticaria because of uh, mental health issues. I mean, we are, we are um, so far ahead of that now, but back then that was normal. That was what people thought.
1: Yes. And also, we, we didn't know uh, the mechanisms exactly uh, of, the, of urticaria. And we used to, to call uh, urticaria as an idiopathic mm-hmm. disease as well. Uh, and all of that was very difficult uh, for us to, to understand what was going on and what could we do to, to the patients at that time. Uh, I remember uh, doing a lot of investigation to try to find the cause of urticaria. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a protocol uh, during my, my fellow uh, that was headed by Roberta Criado that we we used to do almost all the possible tests to try to find a cause. Yeah. Uh, but then, when they uh, this started to to change, and now we have very limited uh, tests recommended by the guidelines. Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about that, Marcus, please. Uh, how how was this change from a lot of uh, tests to to few ones?
0: Luis. It was the same. It was the same with us. We were we were young. We were curious. We didn't know anything, so we wanted to know as much as possible. And we did actually two things. No, we um, we established what what Anna uh, often calls a monographic urticaria clinic, meaning that for uh, the entire day, all we did was uh, uh, see patients with chronic urticaria, and listen to them, and ask them questions, and try to pick up triggers, uh, aggravators, maybe suspected causes from what they told us. And, you know, I, I think that was very important because I learned a lot from talking to so many urticaria patients. I mean, hundreds, hundreds, no? Um, they were so happy that we had this uh, this clinic for them, that we were interested, that we showed compassion, and, and that we were curious, curious uh, on how to help them. And we investigated them up and down, just like you. Oh, I remember we took blood and urine and we did diets and uh, all kinds of provocation tests. And I think simply doing that to many patients was so important to be taken seriously, to to know that they have someone who cares. And uh, um we didn't really uh, find out a lot of things at the time that m- moving forward were important to develop better treatment options. But one thing came out of this that i that that changed my life, really. Um, We we came up with the hypothesis that this could be, the disease could be an allergy to self because we had tested them for all the known allergens. No, And uh, it wasn't a food allergy. We knew that after the first 100 patients, it wasn't linked to any aero allergens. So we said, well, you know, they, many of them have high IgE. Um, it looks like an allergy. You know, we we know the same signs and symptoms, wheels and angioedema, from true allergic reactions. What's going on? Could it be that patients are allergic to themselves? And we started to establish assays. And in the end, uh, that is now a well-recognized uh, endotype cause of chronic spontaneous urticaria. And in a way, uh, this has also led us from the term chronic idiopathic urticaria, meaning we don't know why people have this disease, to a more descriptive term, chronic spontaneous urticaria, with now two well-established endotypes, the uh, chronic autoimmune spontaneous urticaria and chronic auto allergic spontaneous urticaria. i think for me that was a breakthrough um, and and also helped to develop ideas on how to better treat this disease no?
1: yes and you know marcos i remember uh, reading a paper you you know that the, the you know this paper i don't know if you are a, is a, a co-author or not from martina kozell uh where uh, she shows that when you uh, investigate everything, just in a few patients, you could uh, find a cause that could be related to, to urticaria. And that changed uh, completely our way of uh, thinking about how to manage these patients in terms of uh, investigation, investigating and finding uh, a cause.
0: Absolutely. Uh, uh, Louis, Louis, I remember that paper really well. It was an eye-opener. You know, and, I, and I do think we have to look at this testing mania uh, from two different angles. You know? When you and I and other UCARES test patients, then we're curious to find new things. But what that paper referred to was all of that testing that was done in routine clinical practice with the idea that when we do these hundreds of tests, Uh, to our patients, we will find uh, the underlying cause. And that's just not true. I'm a a big fan of curiosity and moving the borders and finding out new things. But leave that to the researchers, leave that to the scientists. Uh, In clinical practice, we have to be careful with all of this testing. One, it's a lot of money. Two, it's a lot of time. Three, many patients are advised to... Uh, discontinue their treatment to do all these tests. That's bad for patients. They don't want to or can discontinue their treatments. And because they don't want to or cannot, their really effective treatment is pushed so far. No, we're delaying the time to effective treatment by all of this routine testing, which at least in my country now is becoming less and less popular. Um, I'm really happy about that. We need to test, yes, but a very limited set of tests are sufficient for routine clinical practice. Let's focus on the treatment. That's what patients need.
1: Yeah, and uh, I was also thinking, Marcos, about the physical, what we used to call physical urticarias, that yeah. Yeah. now we call uh, SINDO. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what, what have changed in terms of these uh, types of urticaria? Mm. Uh, I know that we still have a lot to learn about them, especially mm. those ones that are not so uh, common. But also in, in terms of uh, nomenclature, yeah. as I said, we, we now understand that physical... Maybe a term for some of of them, but not yeah. for all of them. Uh, tell me something about this uh, this changing in the understanding of this oticarius. Uh,
0: Louis, I still remember my first encounter with uh, cold urticaria. It was a young woman, and um, I did the ice cube test, as we all did back then. No, took that really 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 cold ice cube from the freezer put it on the skin and 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 was watching that reaction develop and i was fascinated no because i thought mamma mia this is this is so iconic so uh, so clear no it must be easy actually uh, easier than in chronic spontaneous uticaria where you do not know when and, and where patients will have the weeds. It must be easy to look in that skin, into that skin as the wheel develops and figure out why do these mast cells respond to the cold. And unfortunately, um, we're still not in a position to answer that question. And I I I feel that we must, we must focus, put more energy to investigating and identifying the pathomechanisms of chronic inducible utic area. Now, I no longer think it is as easy as I thought 20 or 30 years ago. Um, But um, we must we must work together to figure out these uh, these diseases. They are very disabling. Uh, I know that from many hundreds of Sindhu patients who we treat here in Berlin. And I think we also have much better technology now. Look, we can we can harvest if you want. We can suck the, the skin juice out of a Sindhu wheel with hollow microneedles. We can do skin microdialysis. Of course, we can um, and could uh, also do um, uh, biopsies. But today we have much better technology to look at signals that are upregulated uh, in the skin of these patients, especially in the skin as it is exposed to the trigger. So, um, I, I, I find it frustrating that today we do not have, besides the anti-histamine, any licensed treatment for chronic inducible urticaria. That, that's not good, and we should do better. And I'm very happy to see now uh, nowadays uh, programs, development programs, focus on chronic inducible urticaria. They're actually really good diseases to study urticaria. And um, with some of these novel treatment options showing such good responses in cold urticaria, in symptomatic demographism, also in cholinergic urticaria, I think we will come to better research on this disease, but also learning from these novel treatment options and their effects, their efficacy on what works, what is involved uh, from the targeted treatments that we use in clinical trials.
1: Yes uh, I agree with you. I think that the, I think that seeing those diagnosis is not that difficult. No. We have protocols, we have uh, devices uh, but we still have to learn part of the mechanisms to find a very good drug for these these patients yeah. uh, We have we already have some, Interesting um, projects in the UKR network. That one uh, headed by Moitza in code urticaria. Right. Mark Valley is studying something in dermographism, But uh, I think we we need more more people involved, more people interested in studying these uh, types of urticaria that are not the the majority yeah. of the urticaria patients, but uh, a significant percentage that we we have to take care of as well.
0: I agree very much. And Luis, we've come a long way when you think about uh, these very nice testing protocols that are now well-established and uh, commonly used. When you think about um, patient-reported outcome measures, like activity scores or control tests that are being applied in uh cold urticaria but in, in many other chronic inducible urticarias uh, when you look at cold sea and and the other projects that you already mentioned um, we understand much better the burden of the disease the duration um, the profile uh, so we we have learned about chronic inducible urticaria quite a bit but what we haven't learned is the pathomechanism the most interesting and valuable uh, question to answer because Luis, I think, in the end, what we want to achieve is to find a cure. We're helping our partners in industry develop really good treatments that aim to prevent the signs and symptoms until spontaneous remission occurs. But what I really want is to be able to do something that makes patients lose their urticaria once and for all, to cure them. And I think that this is, once we figure out how it works, easier in chronic inducible urticaria than in chronic spontaneous urticaria. Let me tell you why. I think that auto allergy is a major driver of chronic inducible urticaria. If we can prove it, if we can find these de novo auto allergens that occur, come into existence when the trigger hits the skin. And that means that we should be, in theory, able to desensitize, tolerize patients to these autoallergens. And I think that really holds a big promise. But we have to know what is it that the IgE in these patients uh, detect and use to make the their mast cells crazy with so that then we can develop specific immunotherapy protocols with the use of these autoallergens. That's my big hope for the future. And I think you know, once we can do it in Sindhu, we will probably also figure out a way to do it in autoallergic chronic, spontaneous urticaria.
1: Sure. And Marcos, uh, going deeper in, in treatment. Uh, when was the, the first uh, the first guidelines when the first guidelines was published? Do you remember? I mean, which year
0: was that? I I don't know the year, but we're now in the fifth revision and update. So that makes the first guideline, at least guideline version, at least 20 years old. And if yeah, (laughs) and uh, you know, I I think the biggest breakthrough was phenomenal uh, when we, in one of the update uh, and revision, uh, included omalizumab, even though. Uh, even though it wasn't licensed, no? It was then a drug for asthma, it was available, um, and we had the first results from these first clinical trials, and we included it in the recommendation to be used, even though it wasn't licensed for urticaria yet. I think that changed the world of euticariology and, uh, most importantly, of our, of our patients. And I think the guidelines are such an important instrument because we can see that with every update and revision, We improve, we improve based on the evidence that became available based on our experience. It's now probably one of the best guidelines in our field. When you think about uh, the many other diseases for which we have guidelines, it's clear. um, It reflects uh, uh, the, the new data. It's a living document. It's endorsed by a global uticariologist community. And it provides really nice hand on guidance for the diagnostic workup. And for the treatment. So I'm very proud um, to be a part of this and very happy that we continue to make this guideline better every time we revise and update it.
1: Yes, uh, the guidelines are essential in in clinical practice. And I think that we came from a time where we had uh, experience based medicine. And now we have evidence based medicine. But we see a lot of colleagues that are stuck in the past yeah, and they are still using old treatments like first generation antihistamines yeah. and other drugs that we know now that uh, do not have uh, an effect in, in treating area. You're right. You're right. I, I don't understand why they, they still use this kind of drugs, uh, what is the difficult that they have to to change or that we have to convince them to to change?
0: Louis uh, I wish I knew because then I would do something that yes. right there, but I think we're still guessing on how to convince uh, all of our colleagues to follow the guidelines look i have some ideas you know we, we know from the time that we talked about many years ago that urticaria was not a well liked disease you no know? and so many colleagues are also not that interested in urticaria and in fact i, I, I know and colleagues in my country who are still a bit afraid you no know, a bit reluctant um, and i i think we need to tell them that we things have change so much that they no longer need to do the things that they did 20 years ago now think of cortisone no we know that cortisone has no place in the treatment of chronic urticaria no but i look out there and uh, many less specialized colleagues still use it still use it and it is because that's what they used to do And uh, they used to do that because there was nothing better. Today, we have something better. So that's the angle, I think, of uh, talking about the, the things we should do and the things we shouldn't do anymore to bring everyone who treats urticaria patients. And that's a lot of different physicians, right? We're talking pediatricians. We're talking family practitioners. We're talking ER physicians. No, know, a lot of different physicians see urticaria. It's not just the allergists and the dermatologists or the urticariologists. We need to talk to a lot of different physician groups to spread the word right from the get-go. The first time a urticaria patient sees a physician, they need to be brought on the right track and not uh, be treated with these old uh, things that we no longer use.
1: Yes. And uh, I think the the U Care uh, Level Up program is a good, good way to to achieve this objective.
0: I agree. In, I agree. In
1: teaching colleagues and other health professionals to to understand better, public area in general.
0: Luis, th- thank you for that segue, which brings me to my first and also the last question of this podcast, because. Uh, we have to uh, come to an end, uh, UCARE level up, so successful. And of course, our UCARE conferences and the Global U Carrier Forum, other instruments to spread the news, exchange ideas uh, and increase awareness and knowledge. And I'm very happy that you agreed uh, to reveal today for the first time to the world, the dates of the next Care conference, which everyone knows will be in Sao Paulo, but no one knows yet when and, Luis, I will leave that to you, a little drum roll. The next Care conference in Sao Paulo will be...
1: In December 2023, from 7 to 9. We are planning to start at, uh, on the seventh after lunch, and finish... Uh, on saturday at lunchtime super so people have time to to walk around here and enjoy this beautiful city with lots of cultural attractions restaurants and everything that a big city uh, has you are all invited to come please come and save the date
0: Fantastic. Luis, thank you so much. I know this will be a real treat. Of course, we will all see each other um, this December in Berlin for the Global Carrier Forum, but I can't wait for December 7, 8 and 9, 23 and to see you and everyone in Sao Paulo. Thank you so much, Luis, for doing this with me today. It was a true pleasure, um, and I do hope that we get to do it again. It's always fun to talk to you, uh, exchange all these memories today and maybe visions the next time we come together. People, this was another episode of All Things Urticaria, your Care podcast today with Luis asking me. Uh, about things that he wants to know if you have things you would like uh, me to ask or someone else to ask questions that you want answered shoot them my way we'll be happy to have another episode on what you would like to talk about until then thank you so much obrigado Luis
1: thank you thank you Marcus. thank you all
0: everyone have a wonderful day and be well until we hear each other the next time Goodbye. Medthority would like to thank Marcus Maurer for that fascinating insight into you If you have any other questions regarding urticaria please feel free to ask us via our website www.medthority.com. Remember to tune in for the next episode of All Things Urticaria. From all of us at All Things Urticaria from Medthority, have a lovely week.